Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Toldot this morning. We are coming to the end of the story of Esa of Yitzchak and his two sons, Jacob and Esav, and uh, Isaac is attached to his older son, and Yaakov is the younger son. Yaakov tricks his brother, if you'll recall, out of his birthright, being the firstborn. He tricks him out of that when Esav is hungry and desperate for food. Yaakov sells him essentially what he's cooking in exchange for the birthright. Then we now have the scene. We're coming to the very end of the scene because we're in the third portion of every Torah portion, the third third. We're coming to the scene where uh, we come in right as Isaac has given Jacob the blessing that was he, that he intended for Esau. All right, so Yaakov takes the blessing by tricking his blind father into thinking he's blessing Esav, when in fact he gives the blessing to Yaakov of being the boss. Your brothers will serve you, everyone will serve you, you're going to have everything you need, uh, and this is the blessing that Yitzchak gives to Yaakov that he intended for Esav, There's a lot of rabbinic discussion about does Isaac know, does Isaac not know. We're not going to go there. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to concern ourselves too much with that because what I'd like us to do is, because we're going to read this over and over and over and over for the rest of our time studying Torah, I'd like us to kind of stay where we've been with this idea, you know, just kind of exploring this idea of of Yitzchak, of Isaac and what goes on uh, in this family. So we are going to come to the very end where uh, Yaakov, uh, I always get these names terribly confused. So Yitzchak has sent Esav out to hunt game, to bring game back for the ceremonial meal at which he's going to bless him. Yaakov, of course, with Rivka's help, uh, prepares meat very similarly and um, and the meal is served, and the blessing is given, and it's the, this moment that we are picking up on um, is uh, is Yitzchak blessing Yaakov and Esav coming in. So then his father Yitzchak says to him, he says to Yaakov, come close and kiss me, my son. So throughout this narrative, which we studied last year together, because we studied the whole story last year up, up to this point, um, there's lots of conversation about why does Yitzchak keep needing Yaakov to come closer? He wants to touch him. He wants to smell him. Is he suspicious? Possibly. But finally, he says, come close and kiss me. This is a ritual act, a ritual kiss. We're at chapter 27, verse 26, and then we'll look at verse 27. And he goes up to him, and he kissed him, and Yitzchak smells Yaakov's clothes and blesses him, saying, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the fields that yud heh has blessed, because Yaakov is wearing Esav's clothes. 
Rivka dresses Yaakov in Aesop's tuxedo for this uh, spectacular moment in the family history. And the tuxedo smells like the field because that's where Aesop hangs out. All right. And so what does, what does uh, Yitzchak say when he blesses his son? May God give you of the dew of heaven and the fat of the earth abundance of new grain and wine. Depending on where we have Yitzchak living, there's a lot of articles written about where Yitzchak is living right now. You don't hunt game in Beersheba. So, you know, probably it's not Beersheba, but in other places we're told he's living in Beersheba or at Be'er L'chairo'i. Uh, other places it's Kiryat Arba. We, we just, we, there's a couple of different things going on. But anyway, if you're talking about Israel, you're talking about needing rainfall, uh, in order to have agriculture, and you need dew in many places. Many plants in Israel have adapted to be able to um, to take in water by being able to capture dew, the morning dew. So uh, the dew of heaven and the fat of the earth, abundance of new grain and wine. This means, of course, agriculture and fields. Let peoples serve you and nations bow to you. Be master over your brothers and let your mother's sons bow to you. Cursed be they who curse you, blessed they who bless you. This is reminiscent of Abraham's blessing. You know, you, that God says you shall be a blessing through you shall all peoples of the world be blessed. A very similar kind of idea here that, uh, cursed be they who curse you, blessed those who bless you. This is the blessing of being the master. This is the blessing of being the patriarch. Yaakov right here, inherits from Yitzchak the role of patriarch in the family. No sooner had Yaakov left the presence of his father Isaac, after Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, than his brother Esau came back from his hunt. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, go, yeah, go 31. He too prepared a dish and brought it to his father like he had been asked. And he said to his father, let my father sit up and eat of his son's game so that you may give me your innermost blessing. The, and I don't love innermost here. It's the blessing of your nefesh, the, your, the blessing of yourself, like of your, it's like the blessing that the patriarch gives. So his uh, blessing from nafshechaf, your, your unique blessing, if you will. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? Presumably Isaac recognizes Esau's voice, right? Who's saying, bless me. And Yitzchak presumably is confused right now. He just blessed Esau. So he says, who are you? And this happened many times. You, you can't appreciate the literary quality of this without having read the rest of the story. But this happens many times. Mi ata, who are you? Who are you? And that could be like the subtext of this whole business. Who's who? <laughs> right? Who, who are you? And he said, Bincha, Bechorcha, Esav. I'm, what are, you, what are you talking about, dad? It's me. It's your son, your firstborn, Esav. Like, duh, right? So 33. 
Isaac was seized with very violent trembling. Who was it then, he demanded, that hunted game and brought it to me? Moreover, I ate of it before you came, and I blessed him. Gam baruch yehye. He will stay blessed. Like, it's done. Okay, go down to 34, please, Rachel. When Asaph heard his father's words, he burst into wild and bitter sobbing and said to his father, Barcheni gam ani avi. Bless me also, my father. Vayomer. But he said, Ba'achicha, your brother came with guile and took away your blessing. Asab said, Was he then named Yaakov that he might supplant me these two times? First he took away my birthright and now he has taken away my blessing. And he added, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered, saying to Esau, but I've made him master over you. I've given him all his brothers for servants and sustained him with grain and wine. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau says to his father, have you but one blessing, father? Bless me too, father. And Esau wept aloud. Look at how many times Esau says, father, 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 father. And Isaac is essentially saying, there's nothing I can do for you. And finally, what's left for Esau is to howl, is to sob. So finally, Isaac says, see your abode shall enjoy the fat of the earth and the dew of heaven above. Clearly, Esau doesn't get how spiritual stuff works. Yet by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restive, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now, Esau harbored a grudge against Yaakov because of the blessing which his father had given him. And Esau said to himself, let but the mourning period of my father come, and I will kill my brother Yaakov. When the words of her older son, Esau, were reported to Rivka, she sent for her younger son, Yaakov, and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. Now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to Haran, to my brother Lavan. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you have done to him, like that's going to happen anytime soon. Then I will fetch you from there. Let me not lose you both in one day. Then Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, I am disgusted with my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries a Hittite woman like these from among the native women, what good will life be to me? All right. So Lisa's asking about, uh, Lisa's asking about what does this mean that he can't take the blessing back? So we have to remember that we are dealing with a culture in which words have power, words have meaning, and uh, once they are uttered, it sets in motion things that are going to happen in the world that you can't undo. 
So once someone with the power, like the patriarch, has the power to confer the status of patriarch on a son, you can't undo that. It was understood once you unleashed that into the world, it was done. The world was now changed by your invocation of intention. And the same held for curses. You can't undo a curse. You can only try to figure out a curse that'll veer that curse off course. But they're already out there in the world. We don't really understand things that way. We, cause we are very aware of the reality of lying, right? But if you think about, you know, testimony, I was just listening to Colin Powell, um, the story of Colin Powell this morning on NPR on my way here, um, you know, testifying that Saddam Hussein was involved in trade, that his people in Iraq were, were training Al Qaeda. And that was part of what happened at 9-11, and it was part of the reason that we went to war uh, and that he supported going to war in Iraq. It was all based on one person who was tortured in Egypt with no CIA people present and somebody else who lied. And the, the guy recanted afterwards. So what I'm saying is we still see what happens when people take people's word, and then but people don't mean it, they're lying, but things happen when things get said, things happen. And in the ancient world, they understood it as having great power that was absolutely, you couldn't, you couldn't take it back. That's, at least I don't know if that answers your question. So say what you're, yeah, tell me. What. I was just going to ask, I, I heard it, would Jacob theoretically then have the power to relinquish his um the blessing to his brother. I mean, not that he'd want to, but that would be one way to undo the blessing. I don't think so. Hmm. I don't know of any case biblically where that happens. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, but first of all, he's not going to, but second of all, I don't know that that works. Yeah. I, I, I honestly don't I know. I can't imagine that in all of that history, even in that time that someone would, even a leader would, would make a blessing and that it would stick like glue no matter what. But that's reality for them. Yeah. Why do we have such a hard time believing that? Why, why is that so hard for us? Yeah, it is hard for us. <laughs> right. For them, that was, that was how it was. Like, it wasn't, you didn't choose it. That's, that's how it was. Yeah. Okay. So, well, Barry, I'm not sure that's true, that he didn't get any of the stuff promised in the blessing. He winds up a very wealthy man. He winds up with the fat of whatever, and he winds up the patriarch. And so what, there's an incident, yeah, of having to leave uh, for hunger, but he doesn't starve. So, you know, he is successful. He is incredibly wealthy, and he has enough money to buy food when there's a famine to send his kids. Now, I'm not saying this turns out to be a happy story, which is kind of what I want to talk about, right? So Isaac sends for Yaakov. And blesses him again as he's about to send him off and instructs him saying, you shall not take a wife from among the Canaanite women, right? Presumably Rebecca's come to him to say, I hate these Hittite women. Get, get him out of here as her ruse to get Yaakov away from Esav. Up, go to Padan Aram. Notice this is not where Rivka was sending him. Where was Rivka sending him? 
to Haran, which reminds us of Sarah. She's sending him to Haran. This is a different source. This is a different story where Isaac sends his son to Padan Aram, to the house of Betuel, to your mother's father, and take a wife from there among the daughters of Lavan, your mother's brother. Okay? May El Shaddai bless you, make you fertile and numerous, so that you become an assembly of peoples. May he grant the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring, that you may possess the land where you are sojourning, which God assigned to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Yaakov off, and he went to Padan Aram, to Lavan, the son of Betuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, mother of Yaakov and Esav. When Esav saw that Yitzchak had blessed Yaakov and sent him off to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, charging him as he blessed him, you shall not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram, Esau realized that the Canaanite women displeased his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took to wife, in addition to the wives he had, Machalat, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Avraham, sister of Nevayot. All right, here we have two different sources. We have two different traditions around Isaac, Yitzchak, uh, Isaac, What's his name? Yaakov and Esav. We have two different sources. We have a P source and we have a J source. The P source is concerned. The story the P source wants to tell is about Isaac wanting Jacob to marry and have children through Rivka's family. They're where they come from. That's what P is interested in. P does not have a story where Jacob steals the blessing. That is a J source. So possibly J-E. So that's an early source. Well, it depends if you want a late P or an early P. But um, but these are two different stories that are woven together, uh, and we can see the seams uh, between them. I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you the P text from before the stealing, jumping over the stealing, because P doesn't have that story, to here. I'm going to read you what scholars believe is the P material. You tell me if you buy that it's one piece. When Esau was 40 years old, this is 2634, when Esau was 40 years old, he took to wife Judith, daughter of Be'eri the Hittite, and Basmat, daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a source of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. 2746, Rebekah said to Isaac, I am disgusted with my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries a Hittite woman like these from among the native women, what good will my life be to me? So Isaac sent for Jacob and blessed him. He instructed him, saying, You shall not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. Up, go to Padanaram, all the stuff that we just read. Um, and it continues on through that, and you know, that Esau sees that these women were displeasing to Isaac. So I, so Esau goes to Ishmael to take a wife from among another part of the Abrahamic family. That is one 
source. You, I totally buy that that is a source reading straight through. We have inserted in there the story of Jacob stealing a blessing. Because if P knows that story, why would P have uh, Isaac bless Jacob again? He's already given him everything. There is no need for him to give him this blessing. It, it's Department of Redundancy Department. And so um, this, this is one of the arguments. The second blessing is one of the arguments for the fact that P does not ever have Jacob stealing the blessing or stealing the birthright. That is the final redactor who puts those things together. He goes to Ishmael to take a wife from Ishmael's clan. Who is Ishmael? Ishmael's the older son who was supposed to be the heir, who got the heirship, heirhood, who got the position taken away from him in favor of the younger son. Who was Asaph? The older son, who was supposed to be the heir, who was the heir apparent, who the patriarch clearly wanted to be the heir, who gets that position taken away from him um, and given to the younger brother. So... Asav, on some level, right, is going to the guy who is exactly in his position and taking a wife from among, right, that clan. So still, so whether it's P or J, we have a, tra- we have a tragic Asav. We have a tragic story for Asav. If you look at the J source, you're looking at him being tricked out of his position in the family and in the in the clan. And even if you just look at the peace source, he, he realizes, he overhears, he discovers that his wives are disgusting to his parents. And all he wants is to please his father. And so he goes to Ishmael to take, maybe this will legitimize him in the eyes of his family, and he goes to take a wife from among the folks of Ishmael. Okay. In either case, this family has now passed, right, one kind of trauma onto the next generation. They hate each other, and because of what happens, Yaakov has to flee, and we know what happens to Yaakov. We know what's coming. We've read this book a couple of times. We know what's coming for Yaakov. And Yaakov's about to get his comeuppance. Right? Yaakov may have succeeded in taking the blessing. He may have succeeded in taking the position in the tribe. But what good does that do him if he's a refugee somewhere with nothing? All he has is the promise of becoming patriarch. He then is a refugee, and we know what happens to him. He gets swindled by Lavan, and he winds up spending 15 years, right, working to uh, to get the family that we know he winds up with, uh, Rachel and Leah and their concubines, Bilha and Zilpah, and all of the 13 children that will issue from that uh, little quartet. All right, so looking at this whole business of the Akedah that we started talking about last week, there's 
there's what some people want to call delayed trauma for Isaac. So I didn't know about this, but I read that women in Cambodia who witnessed the things that the Khmer Rouge did, decades later, many of them apparently developed problems with their sight. And a bunch of tests were done, and there's no like physical explanation for this. Um, and it didn't happen immediately after. It was some kind of blindness that a lot of these women suffered from who had witnessed such horrible things that they couldn't unsee. That is a fascinating way to read the Isaac story, that Isaac in his later years develops blindness. Now we know his eyes are keheh, says the Hebrew, cloudy, so possibly he's got cataracts. But I kind of like this other reading, right, that says he he can't unsee the knife in his father's hand. But he functions. He goes on and he functions until he's older and like these other women uh, who saw, who can't unsee what they saw, he experiences blindness. But I think it's also metaphorical, right? He couldn't see his sons. He couldn't see his children. He couldn't see what he was doing. He couldn't see what he was creating in the family. And he couldn't see that Rebecca didn't agree. He and Rivka, who were so close, he and Rivka, who were told he loves her, he can't see that she doesn't want Asav to inherit the birthright? Did, did Rebecca tell him about her oracle that she had that says the older will serve the younger? We don't know. If she did, he didn't listen. So I, I feel like this, what we talked about last time, the trauma of the Akedah continues to play out here with Isaac having a father who was ready to sacrifice him and he's ready to sacrifice one son, right? For the other, we have Esau calling, you know, my father, father, father. And Isaac can't respond. He can't give him, it's too late. He can't give him what he needs. He can't give him what's, what's expected. Just like his father, who couldn't do that for him. And we see the, the results are that, right, this family splits apart. What does it mean for Isaac and Rebecca once Yaakov's gone? You gotta wonder about how that happy tent feels, right? That her favorite son is now, she got for him what she wanted for him, but now he's gone, and guess what? She never sees him again. She never sees him again. She loses her son. So in, in doing what she feels she needs to do to secure his place in the, in the patriarchy, she sacrifices her son and never sees him again. That, that is epically tragic, like all the way around. And it's, for me, it's, it's the, the trauma of this family that just keeps on giving. I looked at a piece by Rabbi Aviva Richman, and she says, maybe what we have in front of us is a variation on the original Akedah story. Asav has a father who has two children and who has, according to Yitzchak's understanding of the divine will, just one blessing, 
one son will be left behind, sacrificed. Yitzchak is a father who believes that he has to choose between his oldest and youngest sons and maybe even between his God and his children. A father who is afraid when he is called to respond and protect by means of the saying, my father. He is startled at the exact moment when, as a father, he is expected to supply a solution or response a father who can't hear his son's cry for order, for an arrangement that is both complex and connected. Aesop cries, my father, four times, and in the end he realizes, just as his father did, that there is no answer beyond silence. He gives up and he weeps. The order that Aesop is crying out for is one in which fathers don't eliminate or sacrifice their children. He wants a world in which a father blesses his children, all of his children, a world that is complex and connected, of people who love each other, facing each other. Maybe the connection and unconditional acceptance that Esav wants from Yitzchak is something that he can't give because Yitzchak never received it from Avraham. Yitzchak inherits his father's stubborn, distant obedience and acts that way with his son. Yitzchak is able to love, able to connect, can see the other, and notice someone else's needs, as we see when he stands, l'nocha rivka, which the text tells us he does, when he's blessing her so that she should have children. But when it comes to his sons, he is distant and distancing. The echo of the akedah suggests that Yitzchak learns about relationships from Rivka and about disconnect from Avraham. And it makes me wonder a little bit about the way we talk right now uh, in our society about how we raise up genders. That, right, how we, we in some ways teach boys, I'm leaving the Akedah narrative now, but, you know, that we teach we teach boys you're supposed to be strong and, you know, get up and don't cry and brush yourself off and try again and whatever. And, and like, that we kind of perpetuate this raising of a sense of disconnect and not giving, uh, boys and men permission to, um, to connect, to face, to, to relate to it themselves and to other people. Uh, so it's, um, an article. Lisa from Hadar.org, H-A-D-A-R.org, Aviva Richmond on this portion, on Toldot. I forget what it's called, her piece, but you can find it there. And I can email you the te- this text if you want this text. Um, all right, comments, questions? What's happening with y'all? All of a sudden, they're quiet. What I'm asking for comments, now they're silent. Have you noticed? All right, no problem. Mm-hmm. All right, 33 Jews, quiet as church mice. Amy? Yes, sir. I, uh, I never cease to be amazed that our matriarchs and patriarchs are far from perfect. <laughs> right. Far, far from perfect, even within the terms of Torah. And that at least those stories are not necessarily what should be, but what is. And what should be is left for later. So maybe Sinai was necessary because this is 
first take that people took on how to live together? Well, I wish I could say yes, but I think it never gets better. I mean, like it, we never get there. It, the people complain, Moshe, right? You know, is like done. Like you know, the, we even after Torah, right after Torah. But at least at, at this point, the, the rules have not been laid down. So, because the rules aren't laid down, people can't behave decently. Evidently. Evidently. <laughs> but you know, I don't. I don't that's feel that's like once the rules are given, it changes much. Yeah, that's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the Tower of Babel. And it doesn't mean that later that people actually behaved perfectly, but there is an argument. Or differently. That's why we needed rules. But the rules don't hold. In other words, it's not a story of success. The Torah is not a story of success. Yeah, Sinai happens. Then what? The people are worshiping the golden calf. Then what happened? And and continue to mess up. And then they don't go to war when they're supposed to. So they're just gonna, now they're going to die in the desert. And then the next generation, I mean, it's just, it's a mess. It's a mess. And if you, if you take the teaching of Micha Goodman seriously, he reads past Deuteronomy. He reads to the point where Josiah decides to go to war against Egypt. And as soon as King Josiah decides that, guess what happens? Josiah dies in battle and the whole thing's over. So... If you really read through the rest of the story, we go back to Egypt and lose, and lose sovereignty in the land of Israel. That's the story. This is not a success story. Yes, Dana. So it just feels significant to me that if one has multiple children, this story, I mean, a parent becomes Isaac because you have to, and Rebecca, you have to make these decisions. Like if you have a trust, who do you give everything to? Do you give it to the strongest person who might not be the firstborn? You know, so it's, it's, it's a story that repeats because it's, it's a new story every time. It's not that there's a ra- right or wrong way. Well, it just is what is. It's the reality of life. Well, Aviva Richman would argue, how come you can't divide it equally among them? Why do you have to choose? That, that's a different thing. That's a different thing. We, even if it's my nature, I can still say I'm, I'm going to act against my nature because it's the right thing to do. I want to smack people in the head all the time, let's just imagine. Um, but I don't. So, Isn't it traditional that you give Amy. the oldest male? So, so well, that is certainly the tradition that we're talking about here, right? But when you mention a trust, right, right now, the trust can be split equally among children, right? That is, that is no longer the context in which we're living. And if you look at the matriarchal stories that we've talked about from Mesopotamia, it would have been the youngest child. It was ultimogenitor, not primogenitor, that was the tradition. So there's both. There's either the youngest inherits or the oldest inherits. Yes, Mark. Somebody, Barry? Amy? Hang on, David. Barry? Yes, uh, I like the fact that we actually, uh, like Bert said, we actually have specific rules that are... You're cutting out, Barry. Okay, fix your audio. And we hopefully will be able to hear what you have to say. I hear you saying something about you agree with Bert that we got rules. I, I'd love to see those rules, by the way. 
I, I'd love to see the rules that tell you you have to behave decently to your children. It's not there. All right, David? You know, Amy, one of the things I love about this whole story is the wonderful imperfections. And I think of Diana and Charles, Harry and William, and I look at reality in the world, and the authors here didn't try to cosmetize it. They didn't make heroes. They made very fallible people dealing with real um, imperfect morals and evil. And that's what we are, you know, and I'm not sure where that carries me with this, but I look at this and say, are are these really our patriarchs and matriarchs? They're really a bunch of, uh, frankly, loonies. (laughs) So I don't know where to go with it. Right. The first Jews. Right. So, right. We, which is what I always love about these stories is that they are, you know, they are not stories of people who are anywhere near, not only not near perfect, they're not, they're not exemplars in a lot of ways. Right. That in a way, what I like about our foundational stories is that they're, they're stories in some ways about what not to do. Right. They're stories about how we as human beings, because it is our nature, as Mark said, um, because like Bert said, it's how it is that, that they mess up and they cause a great deal of pain. And I think the reason I resonate so much with these stories is because if you're not a human being who's experienced pain in a family situation, something's wrong with you. Right. You know, if, if you don't experience pain growing up in a human family, you're, you're either a sociopath or right. What the, you know, it just is how it is. And, right. And these stories are very much cautionary tales about when we get carried away or, or like Dana, to some extent, what you said, that sometimes we have to make choices. And sometimes those choices are really hard and they wind up being, even if it's what we want, it can be devastating on another level. You know, that you get, you get what you want to have happen on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's going to mean something devastating and that that's, that's real. And our stories are, are real in that sense, that they, they are not coming to say, here are the exemplars that you need to somehow figure out how to emulate, which is against human nature you know, to do. These are very human you know, stories about, about what it means truly to be involved in a human family. Uh, Barry, you want to try again? again? Yeah. Yep. Is it better now? Okay. Yes. Okay, so um, I like the fact that we have these specific rules that are too specific to be random about uh, the fact that you shouldn't marry two sisters. Who did that, I wonder? Uh, And you shouldn't discriminate between uh, the sons of of women you married uh, if one of them uh, is less loved than the other. Who did that? And, and also we have Abraham serving meat and butter to the angels of God. And we also have rules against that. So, uh, I like the fact that the, these people did things and later on someone decided, okay, no, you shouldn't do that. Don't do as your fathers did. And, and it's true for us as well. We shouldn't uh, do things. Uh, well, they learn, they learn some, but just like us, they don't learn a lot. So because the things you're talking about are, are marriage systems changing in the patriarchy and changing over history. If you want to relate it back to Genesis, Bivakasha, 
But I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't believe that those laws against discriminating against the children of a hated wife is because of Leah. I don't buy it. Okay. Those are etiological stories that, that talk about how those tribes came to be a family, how they came to be affiliated. They are retrojected back. It isn't history that those things happened, and then the people after them said, oh, looking at that, maybe we should make a rule. That's just not how it happens. The, the Torah evolves over a really long period of time, and society changed a lot, and the rules of marriage changed. And do I believe historically there was enough hatred of the hated wives' sons that it needed to be rectified? Yes. Do I buy it that it's because of Brashit? No. Are they related? Yes, because we're human beings, right? And not and not not all that much changes. Sheldon, my view is that the um, Isaac and Rebecca knew their sons, and they had, like all parents, discussed the pros and cons of who should be the patriarch, and they agreed. This is my speculation. They agreed that Jacob should be the patriarch, and Isaac says, "No, that's I may agree with you, but tradition. I follow the rules." Rebecca takes over, and she fools Isaac. Isaac realizes that Rebecca saved him. She, he has an out now. He picks the son that he always wanted us. Okay, so Sheldon has a fantasy uh, that makes him very happy that Isaac and Rebecca were in cahoots, uh, and she, he's grateful that he's off the hook, that Rivka's given him a way out to pick the son he knows is the best son, even if it's against tradition, and the rabbis love your fantasy. The rabbis love that. The ra- that's what the rabbis want. The rabbis are not thrilled that Rebecca would deceive Isaac, and they're not thrilled that Jacob would come by the blessing, the Abrahamic blessing. They care less about the patriarchy than they do about the blessing that's going to continue, the covenantal blessing. Um, they don't like it that that comes through subterfuge, so they love your version. They, that's the version they pick. Mark? You know, the, uh, the story evolves, but human nature doesn't change. And I think these stories are just to remind us that no matter how old they are or how they originated, the reality of human nature doesn't change. And you can move forward to David, to Saul, to Solomon, to all of them. And they're all flawed, every single one of them and every single one of us. Amen. Lisa? I, I was just reminded of a book that I have on my shelf and called The Curse of Cain by Re- Regina Schwartz, which I read a, a bit of, but it's been a while. The one thing that I remember from it, though, that I think is pertinent here is that she talks about this being a world of scarcity versus a world of plenty. And um, that scarcity can control the whole way p- people think about themselves and that notion that there's only one blessing, there can't be a multiplicity because there's just only so much to go around, can control an entire way in which people think about themselves. And I think that's right here. And about their relationships, right? You know, yes. that, um, right, that... Uh, only one blessing. Yeah, that, that scarcity model and way of living leads to a very different set of decisions and conclusions than uh, one than one understanding the world to be one of abundance. The only thing I would push back gently against is that they both wind up successful. Like the reality is it's not scarcity. They, they both wind up the fathers of nations and they both wind up very wealthy men. We're told over and over and over that Asaph did very well. Mm-hmm. Ishmael did very well. 
He had 12 sons, right? Um, Jacob's going to wind up with 12, but Isaac didn't. Ishmael did better than Isaac. So maybe it's a matter of uh, not accepting that notion of scarcity, of pushing back against it. Right? Because it turns out everybody gets enough. Um, and it's, it's when that is heaped on one that, right, as we're going to see with Yaakov, when that's heaped on one, then, right, there's only this, you know, this kid, then we see what that results in. But, yeah, because there's enough, it turns out. All right. Um, so uh, we can leave our characters of of Yitzchak and Rivka here. Uh, we're not going to see them uh, again this year. Um, and we will move on to the Yaakov uh, narratives. We'll move on to the story of what happens uh, with Yaakov and his family, which we know becomes very interesting. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.